0: You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Really good to see everybody here this morning. And... Uh, uh, Trusting that winter maybe, maybe finally sort of headed out the door to stay instead of continuing to come back in and say, and another thing I want to tell you. Yeah, winter's been a little fickle here lately. All right, please turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is where we will be mostly this morning. Last week was Resurrection Sunday. And if you're reading the gospel accounts on your own, Or, more probably, if you've read them before, you know what happens next. Over a period of about 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples in various places, helping them to assimilate the fact that he really had risen from the dead, and preparing them for his departure. Jesus gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission, to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe everything Jesus had commanded. And then we read this in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. That's his disciples standing there looking. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And we count on the promise of those last words that Jesus is coming back, at which time he will take those who belong to him to be with him in God's presence forever. We call this event the second coming, or we might describe it as the day of the Lord. Peter used that phrase in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where he, he said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? Now, there's a lot been said about the second coming of Jesus Christ, much of which is pure speculation on the part of those saying it. I think there are at least three things that we can know for sure about the second coming of Christ, though. Three things we know for sure about Christ's return. First of all, it's going to happen. There is no question that Jesus is coming back. Second, we don't know when it's going to happen. Many people in throughout history have tried to figure out the date of the second coming. Many have made claims of dates gone by, and they've all been wrong. Jesus himself said that no one knows the day or the hour of his return except for God the Father. The third thing we know for sure about Christ's return is we need to be ready for it. At the moment that Jesus returns, there will be no more opportunity to accept him as Lord and Savior. Either we belong to Jesus when he returns meaning that we will spend eternity with him in glory, or we don't belong to Jesus when he returns, meaning we will spend eternity in the torment of hell. This is the same situation that occurs if we die before Jesus returns. Either we belong to him when we die, or we don't, with the same eternal consequences I just described. So, let's go back to the passage in 2 Peter. And take note of a rhetorical question Peter put in the middle of the passage. And if you're watching the screen there, you can see the part in the middle in red. And it says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I think that's a great question. Jesus is coming back. What does that mean for what our lives should be like until he does? Well, as we study Romans chapter 12 this morning we encounter a very familiar passage that tells us, at least in part, what sort of people we ought to be as Christians, outlining for us several aspects of holy and godly conduct. And at the heart of this conduct is the command to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And today's message is called Be Transformed. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Just a quick little poll. How many of you have memorized those verses at one point or another in your life? Memorized those verses? Okay. Yeah, I'd like to see every hand go up because those two verses, uh, those are pretty pivotal and it would be great for you to have those committed to memory. But let's talk about them. The idea of a living sacrifice may sound a little bit like an oxymoron. You know, one of those self-contradictory phrases like military intelligence, right? Okay? That's That's an oxymoron, right? Probably the most common type of sacrifice that w- is found in the Bible are the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament. Sacrifice often carries along the idea of death and something that we see especially with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. As we just coming off of Easter, Good Friday, just before that, Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, we think of sacrifice and we think of death. He died as he made that sacrifice us and so we, we have that association and we might wonder well how can we be living sacrifices what does that mean what does that look like Paul has already given us a hint told us a little bit about how that works in Romans chapter 6 when he said in verse 11 even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus Colossians 3.3 adds this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, means that what we do with our bodies is controlled by God's desire for us. Paul describes this kind of conduct in Ephesians chapter 4 with statements like, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you with his neighbor. He also says there, be angry and yet do not sin. And then he says, he who steals must steal no longer. And he also says in Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. As we continue in Romans 12, we'll see other statements like these that demonstrate what presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God means. And Paul describes such sacrifices as holy because when we make them, we present our bodies to God as instruments devoted to his special use and placed under his control, not ours. The basis of this transformation is the renewing of our minds. Now Paul doesn't elaborate here. But it seems clear to me that Paul is talking about how We think and what we think. As boring as the subject of logic may seem to some of you. Logic? Any logic fans or fanatics? Yes? Got two. Okay, good. Uh, Three. Rick, I missed that, in. All right. Um, God himself is a logical thinker, and he created our universe and our world to adhere to principles of logic. And, yeah, it has a lot to do with truth. This means that some things are true, and some things are false. Some things are good, and some things are bad. Some things are right, and some things are wrong. And the alternative to logical thinking is madness, because it would be to believe that absolute truth doesn't exist, and that nothing is either good or bad, or right or wrong. You ever heard anything like that before? Absolute truth doesn't exist. There's nothing either good or bad or right or wrong. Yeah, we hear this all the time, don't we? Yeah, we hear that all the time. This is exactly the position that the world around us generally promotes in many ways. No absolute truth. No such thing as good or bad. No such thing as right or wrong. Hmm. I disagree. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind in part at least, means that you accept God's standard of how to think and what to think. And I also believe that it's obvious that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is critical to this process. That's a topic for another day. We could spend all day on just that. When our minds are renewed and we are being transformed, it becomes clear that We can't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and then just go do whatever we please. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. All the selfishness and sinfulness and evil behavior that we see in the world around us is off limits to the Christian. Truth, goodness, and righteousness are the standards of Christian conduct. Paul put it more eloquently in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where he said, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, do you think Paul meant that we should think about things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good reputation, excellent, and praiseworthy, but then we can go do things that are none of those? You think that's what he meant? As long as you're thinking about it, it's okay. You can go do whatever you want. No, I don't think so. No. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And when... uh, Solomon wrote that. I think he's talking about our heart in terms of what we have incorporated as the standard of what, how we live, who we are, and, and how you know what it is that we let make the decisions for what we will think and what we will do. What you think is reflected in what you do. In Romans twelve, Paul calls us to be transformed, so that what we do is in accordance with God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. It might sound like a goal you can't reach. I don't think it's beyond our grasp at all. I don't think it's that difficult. I think we make it more difficult because we want things that are at odds with it. And so we need to be transformed. We need to have our minds renewed so that we can conform to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Let's go to verse 3. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. In verse 3, Paul continues to talk about how we think, saying that we should use sound judgment in how we think about ourselves that corresponds to the measure of faith that each Christian has received from God. And he says that those are different. I think this corresponds well with the idea of humility. I like the definition of humility being uh, seeing yourself the way God sees you, having an accurate perception that is in accordance with what God sees when he looks at you. Paul says to use sound judgment as we consider ourselves and I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is needed here as well. Now why is Paul telling us this? Because the body of Christ, the church, is diverse. It's made up of people from different backgrounds and experiences that have different talents and abilities that exhibit different personalities and character traits. In short, I'm not you and you're not me And you're not each other, okay? At the same time, there's only one body of Christ. And every Christian is a part of that body, which makes us members of each other. What God desires for me to bring to the body of Christ is important for you. And what God desires for you to bring to the body of Christ is important for all the rest of us Christians. It would be wrong either to assume that what I bring to the body is all that the body needs. Or that what I bring to the body is unnecessary and it's not needed at all. It would also be wrong to assume that what you contribute to the church has to be exactly the same as what I'm supposed to contribute to the church. God doesn't want us all to bring exactly the same talents and abilities into the body of Christ. And the church doesn't need us all to bring the same talents and abilities into it. Just like your physical body doesn't need all the parts to do the same thing. Kidneys are really important, but you wouldn't want your body to just be a giant kidney, would you? Okay? Yeah, I mean, finding clothes would just be impossible. Shoes would be out of the question. Don't go there. All right. All right. You get the point. For this reason, Paul makes it clear that the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians aren't all the same. Now, there may be some overlap among us in more than one person having, say, the gift of teaching or the gift of giving. And that's a good thing, just as it's good for your body to have more than one kidney. God God did that on purpose, and he knew what he was doing, and he always does. God graciously gives whatever gifts are necessary, at whatever time they are necessary, for whatever duration they are necessary, in order that the church would function the way that it ought to. But that means that if God has given you something to contribute to the working of the body of Christ, you have to bring it. And if you're a Christian, God has given you something to contribute to the working of the body of Christ. So if the body's going to work correctly, whatever it is he's given you, you have to bring it and you have to use it. And so our responsibility is to use the gifts he's given us in an appropriate way. The gifts listed here. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and showing mercy are just a few of the gifts that God gives for the proper operation of the church. This is, an exa- is not an exhaustive list, and Paul gives these as examples to make a point. Uh, and, and in my view of the scriptures, some spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament are no longer needed or present. Uh, and these would include the gifts of prophecy in the sense of inspired utterance not already given in the scriptures don't think we need that. I think the scriptures are complete, and God has given us his revelation as he wants us to have it. Uh, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings of the laying on of some earthly person's hands. These are things that were uh, needed for a time, and they served a purpose, and it seems to me, from the way I understand the scriptures, that time is over. That purpose has been fulfilled. Now, that discussion is beyond the scope of today's message. The point that Paul is making here is that we must use whatever spiritual gifts we have faithfully, devoting ourselves to those gifts with all our hearts. So what he says here is, if you have the gift of giving, what are you supposed to do? Okay, if you have the gift of giving, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give, that's right. And if you have the gift of teaching, what are you supposed to do? That's right. You're supposed to teach. And if you have the gift of serving, don't neglect it. What should you do? You should serve. Sometimes I think it's important to note that there doesn't have to be a formal, organized program or setting within a congregation that supports your gifts in order for you to use them for the good of the body of Christ. I read about a woman who telephoned a friend and asked how she was feeling. Terrible, came the reply. My head's splitting and my back and legs are killing me. The house is a mess and the kids are simply driving me crazy. The caller said, "Well, listen, go lie down. I'll come over right away and cook lunch for you. I'll clean up the house. I'll take care of the kids while you get some rest. And then I'll fix dinner for Sam when he gets home from work. Sam? My husband's name isn't Sam. Oh, dear me, I must have dialed the wrong numbers, said the first woman. And then there was a long pause. The second woman said, does this mean you're not coming over? <laughs> wouldn't that have been a great opportunity for the first woman to use her gifts of serving and encouragement to help someone she didn't even know? Yeah, that's just a joke. But wouldn't that be great in the real world? I mean, that, you might, might try that. Just dial a random, no, never mind. Anyway. But I think that's what someone who has been transformed would do. Here's an opportunity to use gifts that I have, and it's in service to Christ, and so it's for the good of the body. All right. Let's go to verse 9. Kind of a long section here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now... Verses 9-21 through give us some ideas about what the transformed life looks like. And this is not an exhaustive list either. I hope it provides motivation for you to explore Paul's other letters and the rest of the New Testament to get a fuller picture. One thing is certain, though. Love has to come first. In John 13-35, Jesus said to his disciples, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now Paul talks about two kinds of love here using three different words. Pretty interesting. If you, uh, first he, he talks about agape love that we hear a lot about in church. Dr. Jones has defined that for us. He tells us it is the commitment to sacrificial self-giving that seeks the highest good of another. That's the first kind of love that Paul talks about here. The second one he talks about is brotherly love you might describe that as the love that we have for each other as Christians because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a, a natural affinity there, or at least there ought to be, because we have that common relationship. And in addition, the word translated by my Bible here as devoted, that's back in uh, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, it combines words for brotherly love and the protective love that a mother would have for her children, it, it just, it's, it's just a little bit stronger. And he says, be devoted in that way. You know how moms are like. That's why, you know, we say about mama bears. Don't get between the mama bear and the baby bear, right? That's a bad thing to do. Because a mother's love is not just present, it's strong. And it's not just strong, but it can be fierce. I mean, you've you, you all experienced that from somebody at some point. And have that kind of love for each other. Devote yourself to brotherly love in that way. Now, in what manner do we live the transformed life? I've given this uh, point, the, the title, Character Counts. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says we are to be diligent or applying every effort, right? He says we're to be fervent in spirit, which means enthusiastic, Serving the Lord, which I think the contrast there is, we're not living to please ourselves, we're serving him. He says, rejoicing in hope. And hope of what? Well, that would be the hope uh, that we have as we remember God's promises. Persevering in tribulation. And that means not giving up when things get difficult, sometimes really, really, really difficult. And devoted to prayer. And I'm not really sure I think, I, I don't think I need to l- explain that last one. Anybody? Okay. Devoted to prayer. The word devoted here means persisting in, perhaps even with the understanding that it will be difficult. You might interpret what Paul is saying this way, or I might interpret what Paul saying this way. Pray. Keep on praying. Don't stop praying. And then pray some more, okay? These things are issues of our Christian character, and they should characterize our transformed lives. And then verses 13 through 16 give us a brief list list of how to apply our transformed lives to others. Paul tells us to contribute to the needs of the saints. You might remember back in Acts chapters 2 and 4. The Christians in Jerusalem were said to have all things in common. And it, it was said that not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's just the way they operated there in the early church in that time. There are a number of reasons for that. Again, that's a discussion we're not going to get into. But some have used these descriptions to portray the church as either communist or socialist. Of course, that's completely false. And the difference, at least in part, there's more than just this, but communism and socialism determined property ownership and wealth redistribution by force. What the church was doing at that time, And I think what the church should do now is to determine property ownership and wealth redistribution by choice as we perceive the need and rise up to meet the need, okay? Paul just says that we should contribute to the needs of the saints, and yeah, I've read a lot of stuff into that, but I wanted to talk about that for a moment. Paul also says that we should practice, or the word could mean pursue, hospitality, now, that word might mean something different to several of us. You know, as you think the word hospitality, we might think of uh, providing a meal or a place to stay for someone. And those things are examples or, or can be examples of hospitality. The wor- word itself is a little more specific, meaning something like treating a stranger as a friend. Give to hospitality, right? Practice, pursue hospitality. Treat a stranger like a friend. That may involve a meal or a place to stay. It may just involve being a friend for someone who needs one, whatever that means at the moment for that person. Okay? Then Paul gives a command that most of us will find difficult, at least at some point. Rick was talking about this this morning. Rick, I thought you were going to stomp all over this. And you didn't. So it's nice. You know, what you said here in, in opening exercise is going to dovetail well here. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Right? And don't think, and don't think that you can bless them and curse them. We try to have it that way, don't we? Uh, don't do that, okay? Does that mean we should pray for them? Oh, I think it does. And not the prayer of, and God, please give them what they have coming to them. That's not the prayer that God wants us to pray for those who persecute it. Pray for their well-being. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their restoration, or whatever is the highest good for them, Right? Have you ever seen someone going through a difficult time and told them, oh, I'm sorry for what you're going through? You ever done that? I've done that. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, was it your fault? Was it your fault that happened, Raina? That, no, it wasn't your fault? I'm not giving you spot, you to raise your hand. Okay. So uh, sometimes people will even say, well, why are you sorry? It's not your fault that's happening. You ever heard that? I have heard that, too. Yeah. Okay. Why do we say we're sorry for what someone else is experiencing when it's not our fault? I think It's because we're doing what Paul said to do here. We're weeping with those who weep. We're expressing compassion for them. And that's important. Everybody needs compassion. We sing that song sometimes at chapel at school or at camp. Everybody needs compassion. For people to understand that you care, genuinely care about what they're going through and how their feeling affects how you feel because you care about them. Much. And then there's another side to this. Paul so also tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. <sighs> I remember one time, Frank, I'm going to talk about you a little bit now. I remember one time I sold Frank Rollins a compound bow. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I remember I sold Frank Rollins a compound bow, and as I recall, it wasn't too long before he showed up at my house with a really nice bull elk that he killed with that compound bow. Yeah. And I have to admit now, all these years later, that for a moment, the first thing that I experienced was not joy for Frank, but it was jealousy on my part. I've never shot an elk of any kind with a bow, let alone a nice bull like that one. And then I was ashamed, and then I came to the point where I could be genuinely happy for Frank, rejoicing with him, And I never told him any of that. There it is. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Finally, in verse 16, Paul says that we must be very careful about how we view ourselves in comparison to others. The class distinctions and value judgments of people that exist so often in society have no place in the church. I am not more valuable than any of you. Now, I'm not less valuable than any of you either, but I am not more valuable than any of you. I may be better at doing certain things than some of you, or you may well be better at doing certain things than I am, but it has nothing to do with our value as human beings or with how we are to treat each other. Once again, love in all its appropriate forms is to be the hallmark of the way we relate to each other as Christians. And then the last five verses, which, yeah, again, Rick was talking about this a little bit this morning. Again, I thought you were going there and you didn't. Thank you for not going there, but that's okay either way. Vengeance is God's. When I was in high school, into my first year of college, I I knew a girl whose self-proclaimed motto, I mean, the only reason I knew this is because she she would tell people. Her self-proclaimed motto was, I don't get mad, I get even. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? Oh, hey, all kinds of hands. Heard people say that. Now, not getting mad is okay, I suppose, but the Bible is clear that getting even is not ours to do. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. More pointedly, never take your own revenge But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Getting even is not an option for the Christian. We leave vengeance up to God and justice up to God's process, something we'll talk more about next week. Our part is to feed our enemy if he's hungry. Now, Rick, you can incorporate that in your thing. Maybe the, the Jewish guys, he's carrying the Roman soldier stuff the first mile and getting into the second mile, and they're both, you know, kind of lagging. It's a hot day and whatever. He's hey, I got some food. You want some of my food? Yeah, yeah maybe you've already been there. I don't know. Probably. But yeah, you know. Feed our enemies. minds, we have the means of understanding our lives correctly and living them appropriately. God has given every Christian something to contribute to the necessary and proper function of the church, the body of Christ. We must apply ourselves to using those gifts as he intends for us to, putting forth every effort to use them well. Living a transformed life in Christ means that we will love others appropriately Exhibiting true Christ-like character, treating others well, and leaving any sort of vengeance to God. Paul's command in Romans 12.2 to be transformed means that our lives won't be the same as they were before in many ways. Here's something else to consider about what living a transformed life might mean. Hypothetically speaking, if you were a 15-year-old Christian girl, do we have any 15-year-old Christian girls? 15, Christian, one. Okay, that's good. Uh, let's open it up, 13 to 17, Christian. Okay, good. Girls, girls, sorry. Yeah, nice try. Uh we still, we, we still differentiate it anyway, so never mind. A 15-year-old Christian girl in Nigeria. She and 109 other girls were were kidnapped by Boko Haram, a militant Muslim group, on February 19th of this year. Five girls died, I think, in the course of the kidnapping as it was taking place. I'm not sure how that went exactly. All the other girls had been released and returned to their families. But Leah remains with her kidnappers because She refuses to convert to Islam or to renounce her Christian faith. What a powerful testimony. Both to her kidnappers as well as the other kidnapped girls. Now, we don't know how it will all turn out. And I think we certainly should pray for her safe return. But praise God that she is holding fast to her faith. I don't know her, never met her, may never meet her this side of heaven, but it sounds to me like she is living the transformed life. Now, you may never be kidnapped by Muslim extremists. Or I suppose you might. I mean, it could happen. You never know. But you certainly will be called to account on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So will you be living a life transformed by the Holy Spirit because you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or will you be living a life that is conformed to worldly ways and worldly things? The bottom line is either you belong to Jesus Christ or you don't. Another way of saying that is either you have the Holy Spirit living in you or you don't. Either Jesus is your Lord and Savior or he isn't. And if you knew with absolute certainty, if I could tell you right now, and I can't because nobody knows, but if you knew with absolute certainty that Jesus is coming back in 15 minutes, what would you choose right now? For all I know, he could come back in less than. For all you know, that's true too. I hope you'd choose to belong to Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, but you're ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, ready to start living a transformed life, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation.